Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Addictive Pod. It's your host, Adrian, and I'm here with an amazing episode. I'm joined by Anthony Brown. He spent 23 years living on the streets, in and out of prison, taking any substance that would help him numb out from the trauma he experienced as a child and from the pain of his reality. So how did he recover? How did he become who he is now? Not only to be a functional, sober person, but to be giving back to society, to be contributing, to be helping homeless and other addicts to recover. You gotta listen to his story to find that out. I don't want to give too much away. So enjoy the episode and stick around for the end. I have an exciting announcement to make after the episode. But that's enough for me. Here's Anthony Brown. Anthony Brown, welcome to the Addictive Pod. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm so grateful to meet you. You're one of the the people who... Uh, it just makes me feel so lucky to have this uh, side job, I guess, just getting to meet people, getting to help share their stories. And you have an incredible story to share, so I'm excited to hear it. Well, thank you. I um, appreciate um, you having me on, Adrian. When uh, when was the first time you did a podcast? You've done lots of them by now, right? Yeah. Um, I think my first one is probably three years ago. Um I was just kidding around with a friend of mine and after the book got started when it first was being launched and then um, we did a little podcast and I didn't know it was a podcast. We just did a recording. Next thing I know, she shot it out there and it's like, oh, okay. (laughs) And then um, I think I made a commitment to myself the end of last year that I'm going to be more um, public. And so I started Mm -hmm. doing more podcast interviews and things of that nature then. Got it. Yeah, and you've done a lot. I've seen you've done a lot since the book came out. Where do you? Where does the book start? Where do you start your story? Uh, Park Bench to Park Avenue. Um, where Where does that story begin? Um, it begins um, in the beginning, like when I was born. I um, I'm, I was born with an umbilical cord tied around my neck. Uh, my mom, she was she drank a lot. I can't call her an alcoholic, but she drank a lot, and uh, she used to crave sand. So I was I was born encased you know, with an umbilical cord around my neck. And I tell about that, even though I can't remember what it was like. There's other people that told me. And so it started with that. Then the um, early drinking as a little kid, uh, finding my mom's gin underneath the kitchen sink, stealing that um, whiskey and eggnog on the holidays, uh, drinking beer out of cans from her friends, swallowing cigarette butts, all of that. And it just keeps on going up to um, how addiction caught on, um, quitting school, joined, run away from home at 14, and it just goes on through. So when you were 14 then, um, what what led up to you running away from home? What, what was the home situation at the time? I come from a single parent, um, and my home background was extremely abusive. Um, again, like I said, my mother consumed a bunch of alcohol, a lot of out-of-control behavior, a lot of dysfunction. Um, and so we used to get beatings a lot. Um, did you have siblings as well? Yeah, I have, um, I have two sisters and one brother and it's really fascinating because there's four of us, but none of us have the same father. Hmm. And so that's the kind of environment I was raised in, even though my brother and sisters know their father, I never met mine in my, still, even to this day, I never met my father. And Mm -hmm. so coming from that background, um, 
just being out of control. My mother's method of controlling was just beating us, and it just got so severe to the point where I just left home. Wow. And and your other siblings, did they leave home as well? Uh, my brother left home at 16. Um, when I was... When we when I was nine, um, we found my mom laying on the floor one day. She got shot in the head, oh and that um, changed her personality dramatically. She lived, but um, at that point in time, that's when my brother left and my two sisters. Um, all three of us stayed, but then when I was fourteen, I left. My brother was gone, so I was just left my mom with my two sisters. Wow! So she survived a bullet wound to the head, but her personality was different. Definitely. And- Wow, different in a wor- in a worse way, like yeah, more she, she, erratic, more violent. Exactly, exactly. She wow. got extremely mean. Wow, that is that's terrifying. So you move out of home, you you leave home at fourteen. Do you have any other supports at this time? Do you have friends, teachers you look up to, or are you completely on your own? I was on my own. I ran I ran away from home, joined a carnival. Um, there was a carnival in town, and you know um i got a little job there setting up the rides tearing down the rides and then when they packed up to leave i just jumped in the truck and left with them like they they allowed you to hop in or they just noticed you later on in the trip like oh dang one of the guys came with us <laughs> uh no they um that was just a part of what happened back then you know okay. um you pick up people from different locations and then they just work for you then you travel with them uh, throughout the summertime wintertime everybody goes back to where they come from originally and you know, repeat again next summer. Got it. And at this point, what type of, uh, what's your substance use like during this summer? You're 14, you're on your own, basically. What's, what's, what's your substance use like? I was full blown addicted by then. Um, I was drinking from an early age, you know, um, probably five or six years old. Um, I think around 11, my sisters and I experimented with marijuana. Actually, the first time I got high, it wasn't pot. It was Lipton tea, you know, because we we rolled up Lipton tea in in a zigzag and smoked it, and we thought we got high. And so, (laughs) um, and that's that's been my whole drug story. Anything I think that's going to get me high, I put in my body. And so that started then probably around... 13, I learned how to inject drugs. Um, back then, I would eat anything, um, mostly uppers, crosstops, Christmas trees, black beauties. I smoked a bunch of hash. So by the time I was 14, I was full-blown shooting drugs and addicted. Got it. So what happened next? You're part of the carnival. You're doing any drug you can get your hand on, basically anything to, uh, to numb out this traumatic childhood. What, where does that take you? Well, um, I did that for about four years. Then one one day, uh, my friend Jimmy said, you know, let's go to California. Well, I didn't have nothing going on. I was living in abandoned houses, um, not going to school. I, I, I stopped going to school um, in the eighth grade. And so um, I said, yeah, okay, let's go to California. And I'm from a little small town in Ohio. And... Um, the only thing I knew about California was what I saw on TV, like the Beverly Hillbilly show. And so I thought that's what California. <laughs> that yeah, it was cool. And I thought that's what California was all about. You know, everybody lived the in mansions. Exactly. And so we jump in a 67 Mustang and drove across state. And Wow. Classic. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's not all like cement ponds and movies. No, <laughs> no, no. As soon as you get there, I mean, the the Mustang. You you lose the Mustang, and then you lose the cement ponds, and then it starts to get dark pretty fast. I imagine. 
Yeah, yeah, well, it got dark instantly because um, yeah. we ended up moving to the ghetto part of California. And that was when I got introduced to um, smoking PCP. And um, I was still homeless, uh, still shooting drugs, um, stealing. I started selling drugs at an early age, um, all of that. And so I just took me with me. Whatever behaviors I had in Ohio, I brought to California mm-hmm. and just continued living that way. What's going through your mind at this at this age? Is there any reflection on how dangerous it is on the fact that um, doing these drugs might kill you or might lead to somewhere even worse or is it just is it just pure survival mode at this point like what what's the what's the thought process if any at that time um there wasn't really a thought process because once i crossed that line i just had to have drugs at all cost it, it yeah. didn't it didn't matter how i got them um as far as living i, I didn't i didn't think i developed a philosophy that if you don't um want nothing if you don't get anything you don't feel nothing Mm. and so i didn't want anything i I was just drifting aimlessly through through life Mm. and the the friend that was with you in california um did you feel close with this friend or was it was it similar to that it's just kind of drifting surviving together we i guess we were close enough to come to california but um and we became closer friends as we get out here but he had a relative out here and so he lived with his relative Mm. and that just left me you know on my own got it so you're homeless in california you're in the ghetto doing any drugs you can get your hand on so pcp what was that uh what was that like compared to the other drugs you were doing does that have a worse effect or did it start to have worse side effects on you um pcp is a strong hallucinogenic and I've always been an uppers type of guy. And by then I got introduced to cocaine out here and things like that. And so doing PCP was a complete different high. But again, I'd do anything. It didn't matter to me. You know, you put it in front of me, I'm going to do it. And so PCP was a a big change. Uh, I didn't like the the side effects (laughs) of it. Um, I remember once I was standing in a restaurant at at the front counter and I thought I, a piece of my leg was, like, falling off. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was hallucinating really bad, and, you know, my my homies left me, but that's okay. <laughs> they, uh, they're they just trying to have a good time, and it's not a good time when the homie's leg is falling off. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's just selfish. It's just purely selfish thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, in my job, I have so many people presenting to... Uh, emergency with drug-induced psychosis and it's it's amazing to me what's more amazing to me is the people who are doing all these drugs without having complete psychosis like for you to go through this and not show up at an emerge um that's that's incredible to me that your mind somehow survived that i don't know why i didn't end up in emergency room i know i od'd a couple of times but I guess the environment that I was in is that's just not part of the norm. Unfortunately, mm. if you OD and die, that's just the way it is. I remember I OD'd once on heroin and I woke up and people were sticking bread in my mouth and ice down my pants. And, you know, I'm a healthcare professional now. I know that there could have been a, a high probability of me choking 
Yeah. But that's that's not what we what we think out there when you're of that mindset, you know. Mm. And so um and, and there's people dying out there without you know somebody thinking well let's just call nine one one or you know right. most. There's no of, Narcan kits. There's nothing right, like that. Yeah. Right, right. And most of the time we're thinking, well, if I call the police, then I'm going to jail. And so then becomes survival. You know, what do exactly. you do? Wow. And did you see anybody die at this point? Anybody that you were doing drugs with? Um, there was a, there was, um, a couple of people I've heard of dying um, that, were, that I was um, sort of close to. I know um, I have a friend, his entire family got wiped out by AIDS. I've watched that wow. unfold, you know. And so that was kind of sad because I used to, you know, shoot up drugs with that family. And, you know, just watching him get sick, get weak, one goes. Then I think his brother went first. Then his mother went second. Then the father went last. But he survived because he wasn't shooting up drugs. But the whole family got wiped out. Oh my God! I can't imagine being the surviving family member there. Um, that's horrific. Mm. And how long did this period last for? So you're homeless in in the ghetto of California. How long did you stay there? Um, I was homeless total from the age of fourteen to thirty seven. You know, I always always tell people I went to a party at fourteen and I came home at thirty seven. <laughs> oh man, some people just never want to go home. <laughs> there is no home <laughs> there's no home to go to there's no home oh my god wow okay so it's um it's 23 years right mm-hmm. yeah 23, 23 years. years how did you survive that well towards the end um i got arrested a lot i spent most of the 90s um in jails or prison um i would i would get out and go back and do the same thing get arrested get out and that's um some of the insanity of my addiction i would um mm-hmm. get out and go back to the same corner where i was trying to sell drugs i say trying to sell drugs i wasn't i wasn't a very successful drug dealer i'm just putting that out there you know and yeah. um and so i'd go out and i'd go back to the same corner and get arrested and i'd go to prison spend a little time in prison get out go back to the same corner and i did that several times um until the officer who worked the beat finally asked me if I wanted some help. And that's how my ending came is that officer, that officer said, Hey, wow. like, don't you think you want to do something different? What was that like to hear somebody offer help to you after 23 years of just being on your own and, and going through this survival mode? It was, it was, it was different. I don't know if it's because I was just tired. Um, or I don't know if it's the first time, He's ever said anything like that? I don't know, but everything seemed to have converged at that one time when he said, "Don't you want some help?" And I just like said, "Yeah," you know. I, I didn't care in what form because I'd I'd been arrested several times. I was like, "Well, that didn't help," you know. I've never yeah. heard of treatment, you know, because um, you just you just don't do treatment when you're cool like me in the back alley drinking wine out of brown paper yeah, bag, you yeah. know. But um. <laughs> When he said it, I, I said, yeah, you know, and then that started the whole ball rolling. Wow. So he had seen you many times. He had arrested you before he saw you. Yeah. 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 Because I, I didn't I didn't know that police officers have a beat. I mean, that's their block. That's their location. I didn't know that. <laughs> so mm. I kept going back to his same location, getting arrested by the same police officer. 
Yeah. You know, so, so we knew each other, kind of. What a weird, what a weird uh, friend or a weird person to receive help from, you know? Yeah. <laughs> the guy who yeah. keeps arresting you. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you experienced in, in the stays in prison that changed anything for you? Was there any realizations you had during that whole process? Or was it just a blur? Was it just, again, that, that survival mode? Um, prisons became like a second home. Um, I was able to get healthy. I was able to um, learn how to read. Um, wow. I, I read the Bible. So um, my relationship with God sort of shifted a little bit. Um, as a little kid, to me, God was like the rescue God. Like, God, please don't let my mom die. Or God, please don't let me die. Or God, please let her stop hitting me. Things like that. But then when I went to prison and started doing Bible studies, then I started looking at God in a different light, sort of like um, an educational kind of person, you know. Mm. And so that kind of shifted my perspective. But prisons didn't really do much for me because um, I'm... I still had, even though physically, well, sometimes physically I was sober, uh, mentally I was still um, loaded, you know, emotionally I was still loaded. And so only thing I would think about is when I get out, what am I going to do? My intentions in the beginning was, man, I'm glad this is over. But towards the end, it's like, I can't wait to get back into what I was doing. Got it. Got it. So this police officer sees you. He's arrested you many times. He finally asks you if you want some help. You say yes, which is, again, this is incredible that it happened this way. So where did, where did the ball roll to next? What did, you, what did the officer offer you for, as a way of help? Um, I didn't know, but behind the scenes, he had a friend that had a treatment center. And so he spoke with her, and she came down and visited me in jail and um, offered me her facility. And, you know, I didn't have any money or anything like that, so she scholarshiped me. And wow. instead of going from jail to prison, I went from jail to this treatment center. Wow. And how long did you stay there? I stayed there 18 months. Is that yeah. is that the typical stay? That's longer, no? That's, that that's long. long. Yeah, some are sicker than others. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like you, you needed to be there, man. You needed to be there. That's good. That's amazing that they offered that to you. And tell me about that experience. What happened in there? It was, um, it was strange, you know, because I spent all my childhood in a really negative environment. Um, only the strong survive. People getting shot, all of that stuff. Then I spent from 14 to 37 out in the streets in survival mode. And then I get put in this place where everybody's all happy and, you know, wanting to hug you. And, you know, I'm like, what is this? You know? Freaks. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Don't touch me, you know? And, you know, they were all, they were all happy. And it took, it, it was a transition. I mean, going from, and always tell people I went from a, a negative picture on a Polaroid to a different picture in live right. and in color and vivid, right. and, you know, and that transition was hard because my only coping skills was to get loaded and fight. That's all I knew. And, um, I remember I had a roommate. I was there probably six months. I was doing good. Um, and I hit him for no reason. And that really freaked me out because I went six months without fighting, you know. Um, it was a weird transition. I didn't, I didn't 
in the beginning, I didn't like doing chores because they're like, you got to make up your bed. I'm like, why? <laughs> it's like, well, that's what you do. Well, I haven't had a bed in a long time. And, right. you know, I mean, it's cool. It's my bed. And I'm like, no, dude, you need to, like, make your bed. I'm like, why? And so things yeah. like that, you know, um, come sit with the rest of us. I was really isolative. Um, just just all kinds of adjustment things. But uh, finally, I started getting the hang of it. And I'm like, okay, this is cool. You know, I, I like getting up in the morning. I like uh, praying. I like reading material. I, I like meeting friends. Until that mm. one day come and I, and I slapped my roommate. And it's like, oh, my God, everything I worked really hard for just went down the tubes. And that um, that's when I started to start realizing that I got feelings. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you know, why do I feel bad for hitting this guy? Well, because you're not supposed to hit people, you know. Right. And so I got through that. Were you able to connect with the other people there? Did you? Because your, your story is very extreme, and it's very... I, I think the fact that you're isolated, the fact that you isolated yourself makes sense. You were going through life alone. Um, how did you find that? Like making friends, being able to start to open up to other people. Did you find you could relate to them and the, the experiences they had as well? Well, what I would do is because I came in with major trust issues. Yeah. And and um, when we would sit around and have group, I would listen to what they say. And then people would say similar things. You know, like, yeah, I... I smoke weed out of an apple. Well, me too. You know, I smoke meth out of a light bulb. Well, me too. You know, I spent all my money I had on crack. Well, me too. You know, I've been to jail. Well, me too. And I found that mm. similarity. And so on the recovery side of my life at that point, I found cool people, you know, like-minded yeah. people. It's like, okay, yeah, you're, you're my... You're my homie. And they're like, no, we're not yeah. homies here. We're friends. It's like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and I tend to watch what people do, not necessarily listen to what they say. Mm. And so I watched these people, you know, do this deal. And then I went to my first um, outside meeting and, and I loved it because those guys would cuss and, you know, they would say things like, oh, if you want to get drunk, here's some money, go get done because you're not. You know, Damn. sit down. They would cuss me out. And they, it was school. like, yeah, it was cool. I'm like, man, I like this, you know. And and they they stayed sober, you know. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. And so they taught me that you can come from anywhere and get your life in order if that's what you want, you know. I remember hearing this old AA speaker talk about, yeah, this meeting he went to. He was complaining, not doing the steps. They gave him 20 bucks and kicked him out of the meeting. They were like, go get drunk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he didn't he stayed sober but like having that shock like having that it's tough love like it's very intense um and it's very different than a lot of treatment methods that are around now but there's something effective there where it's like yeah we're not we're not gonna bullshit you like you if you're not done just get out of here go do it um there's something in, that works there it, it, it worked for me because I, I come from an environment where might makes right you know, only yeah. the strong survive. And so, you know, the treatment center was great. I'm just like, oh, yeah, you know, let's love you till you love yourself. But I went to that meeting and they're like, no, dude, check this out. You know, shut yeah. up. <laughs> okay, you don't know <laughs> nothing. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and if, if you want to fight, go in the parking lot. But when you come back in here, you have to make amends. I'm like, oh, we could do that here. And they go, yeah, you know, and you can do whatever you want as long as you're willing to accept your consequences. Now, if you go out there and get beat up, don't come in here crying, you know? Yeah. 
and it's like, oh, well, I like this place, you know, it's like, <laughs> I fit in. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was, it was 12 step meetings, right? I hope you yes. don't mind me asking that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and in treatment, did you start to work the steps or was it only once you left, you started going to these other meetings that you started to work the steps? Um, we were introduced to the steps in treatment. Um, but we had to get a sponsor and things like that. So you'd go to outside meetings and then that's where I found okay. that one. Um, and, and I, and I love it. It was, it was a low bottom indigent men's detox. There was no, at, at where I went to my meetings, it was, um, it was, it was a detox, you know, and there was no TV. There was a dirty fish tank, you know, and a <laughs> bunch of big books. And, you know, yeah. if you, if you ask about the fish tank, you know, like, well, that's, that's your TV, you know, it's finding Nemo, you know, <laughs> it's like, okay. And, oh, and it was man. cool. You know, I mean, it wasn't, I've seen people have seizures there and the only thing they did was just move the tables to the side and just let you bounce. Wow. Yeah. And that's how I got introduced to, you know, the 12 steps. What was your experience of the 12 steps? Did you have a sponsor you felt you could trust? Did you have, um, because trust is like, especially with a sponsor, right? You're going to go in there and start sharing and start, um, asking advice and opening up yourself like that. I mean, what was that? What was that like for you? Um, when I went to that meeting and got comfortable, I got to share for the first time and I raised my hand and I identified myself, Anthony, and, you know, call myself what I was. And, um, I can say alcoholic, huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm like, I'm Anthony. I'm an alcoholic. And this treatment center I'm at sucks, you know. <laughs> I have to do chores, you know, they make me make up my bed. I have to eat hot dogs, and that's just not fair. And then, like, everybody clapped. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and then the next guy stood up. He goes, my name is Pete. I'm an alcoholic. And he looked at me, and he goes, you're a whiny little. Then he called me a, the B word oh, and shit. told me to shut the F up. I'm like, <laughs> oh, all right. What? You know? Yeah, and then asking to be my sponsor. <laughs> you asked him yes wow wow so having somebody just be so direct with you having somebody call you out like that i guess did did part of you sort of see it as true like you recognized he was telling the truth um i don't know about telling the truth but he was the first person that just got in my face you know <laughs> i mean because I, I come from that environment you know, we yeah. talk crap to each other. We can fight and everything. And he just, like, gave it to me. I, I call it the business. He just gave me the business. Like, just shut up. Yeah. You don't know nothing. You know, <laughs> sit down and be quiet. Maybe you'll learn something. I'm like, oh, well, this guy's kind of cool. I'm, you know, and he was nice. You know, he'd go, yeah, yeah. you know, we're going to we're gonna love you around here whether you like it or not. You know, but we ain't got time for no BS. You know, and this was the way this whole group was. You know, people would just cuss each other out. I mean, back then you could smoke in meetings and it was just a rough crowd and I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. That's old school. That's like, there's a purity there, you know, there's a real, because I think when the book was written, when the big book was written, it was more like that. There were, there were very low bottom drunks. It was very intense. It was very like, um, people are dying. There's no treat. There's no treatment centers at the time that the big book is written, right? So there's that intensity there. Um, tell me more about the steps. What did you What did you learn? Um, well, I got introduced to the steps, and um, 
I found out that I was powerless over alcohol. You know, my life's unmanageable. I come to believe in power greater than myself and uh, the rest of the steps. And uh, somewhere in the middle, I found a different kind of God. And it was really fascinating because um, when I, I think it was the, the second step, I went to the same park I used to get loaded at. And I was sitting on a bench one day, and I, by then I had two years of sobriety. And I, um, I you know, I'm, I'm like, okay, God, because the meeting, it keeps, you know, in our readings, it says God couldn't and would if you were sought. You know, and I'm like, okay. And so I'm, I'm, I'm sitting on the bench, I'm laying down, I'm like, God, check this out. I, I know cars run on gas, and I know this bench is solid. I know that for a fact. Prove to me you exist. And then that's when I had my spiritual awakening. And ever since then, my life has been rocketed into the fourth dimension. Oh, you got to tell me about that. Or my what happened? Um, what happened? Okay. Let me let me front load you with this one. First of all, for me, okay. God comes to us in a way in which we understand that's unique to every individual. And mm. when I asked that question, I, I opened my eyes because I was laying flat on a bench and the trees were like in 3D in pastel colors. And I'm like, okay. And then I looked around and all these little creatures that were in the brush was like surrounding my bench. There were squirrels and rabbits and just like everything. And then I got this intense feeling of comfort that just permeated my body. And then I got my directions. And ever since then, that was cool. And my directions are... Yeah, what are your directions? My directions, never hate. Never intentionally cause harm to anybody and always finish what you start. Wow. And I've been doing that throughout my whole sobriety. And that came to you, that came to you right in that moment, sitting on Every, the bench. Everything happened at that moment. Everything. And even thinking about it right now, I feel the presence of God in me. And wow. again, uh, for me, God comes to us in a way in which we understand. And that's who I choose to call my higher power. You know, and when we're chit-chatting, because I don't pray anymore. We just chit-chat, you know, and um, and I get on my knees and chit-chat. And we're just we're just friends, you know. Mm. I mean, he for me, he sees everything. He knows everything. And once in a while, he just wants to hear from me, you know. And it's like, hey, dude, like, check this out. You see all of this stuff. How am I supposed to deal with this? Or, you know. And so since that moment, my entire life changed. And my perception of God changed. You know, it's not the God of the rescue business or it's not the God of the leaving lessons. It's it's the God of a unique interpersonal intertwining kinship that surpasses a lot of understanding. And with that, I was able to step out in life, deal with life as it presents myself and somehow be able, I'm able to navigate what's in front of me. And it's pretty cool. Hmm. That's incredible. I'm so happy you had that experience and it's, it's, uh, I, get, I get goosebumps. I get goosebumps just hearing stories like that and hearing those moments because they're so powerful and they're so unique for each person. Mm. Um, but maybe what they have in common is that sense of comfort, a sense mm. of just being, being, being okay, like being loved, being okay, being safe. Um, mm-hmm. That that seems to be universal. Sometimes I'm amazed to be honest with you. And um, I, I used to, and I go through phases because I've been sober for, you know, 23 years. And it used to be, okay, God, you know, 
what would you like for me to do? I'm all open. And then it went to, okay, God, what's next? Then it's like, okay, God, I'm tired. <laughs> you know? And that last yeah. one, I'm like, God, I'm tired. He's like, I'm not. <laughs> I'm like, all right. And so I when just did take- that hit? When when were you? When did that hit? Where you're like, God, I'm tired. Um. When. I think probably by the time I started working on Brown Manor. And um, when I first walked in and seen that place, because I I bought um I I bought a um and this is all part of my life what I'm doing today. I bought a nine thousand square foot nineteen sixteen abandoned mansion to give to yeah. the homeless people, you know. And I yeah. bought it sight unseen because I feel that I was led to do that. And so when I finally went to sign, because this is in Ohio and this is where I can make a miss Ohio and there's there's a story behind that. But um, when I when I when I went to sign the papers it was the first time I seen that house. And when I first walked in the house, it was just it was an abandoned mansion, you know. Um, mildew. I walk in, the first thing I seen was a dried bat hanging off the light bulb, and I'm like, <laughs> seriously, you know. And then that's when I'm like, God, I'm tired, you know. And I went back mm. to my I went back to my room and I prayed, and God's like, I'm not, you know. And I went back the next right. day. And I walked in that door and I seen a whole complete different picture, man. I seen the most beautiful place ever known to man. A perfect place for people who are coming off the streets to get their life in order. I seen comfort, serene, I mean, stained glass windows and the sun shining through it. I'm like, yeah, this is nice, you know? Wow. And so I quit saying, God, I'm tired, because it doesn't matter. How long ago was that? Was that about like six, five, six years ago? No, actually, it was probably um, two, three years ago. I, I paid for the ago. house in 2019. And so, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so that house now, so it, how, how many people live there now? Right now, nobody. We're still in, we're still, still in, in, we're still in construction. Okay. Um, and it's really fascinating because I'm, I'm I believe um, within my heart, I'm led by God to do a lot of different things, you know, and um, this project takes a lot of money, and so I have different sites. I'm I'm selling my book. I'm doing all kinds of things. So everything I do is create funding for that place, and um, it's expensive, which is okay, you know. And God and I we already chit chatted about it. I'm like God, like this is gonna take me forever. And he's like, Well, it took Noah six hundred years to build an ark, and you don't have six hundred years, so don't trip. <laughs> you know, I'm like, okay, you know. <laughs> and so I just you know keep on going. Actually, I'm going out there at the end of July um, to meet with a bunch of people to see what we can do to keep the project moving. Wow, that's incredible. So can I back up a little bit though? Before um, can I back up a little bit to when did you go to school and when did you start to move in this, in this direction and start to have a career in this area? Okay. Um, one of my, one of my instructions was to finish everything you started. And when I was drinking and using, I tried to go to school. I had a, I got my GED in jail. And, uh, and so I wanted to finish everything I started. Um, when I was in my addiction, I tried going to college, but no matter how much meth you do, you still can't start it. You still can't study. I discovered that, you know, your pages have a yeah, lot of different yeah. um, highlight marks and things like that, but um, you don't get nothing done. And so I, I started um, 
wanting to be a psychiatric technician. So I went back to school. I finished that. And then from that point, I stayed in school and I got my associate's in science degree. And then I stayed in school and then I got my uh, registered nursing degree and I stayed in school. And I got my associate's degree in nursing and I stayed in school and I got my bachelor of science degree and I stayed in school and I got my public health nurse. And um, I went to school alcoholically, you know, and (laughs) obsessed, obsessed, you know, and it was it was fun because, again, I have to finish everything I start. And so even though I would fail a class, I still have to do that class again because part of my commitment. And so Mm. through that, you know. I got to navigate a lot of it. And, you know, going to school, being a nurse and having felonies on your background sort of takes a lot more effort because I had to go through different periods of probation. Um, I had to go deal with my record. I had to expose myself to a lot of different people of why is it that I have all of these drug problems, but yet I want to be a nurse. Why should they give me a license? You know, but God said I had to finish everything I started. And he opened up doors, you know. Um, little things would happen that um, I, would, I would go to school and then say, okay, well, I want to be, be a nurse. And they're like, okay, well, here's, here's my background, you know, because everything takes fingerprints. And they're like, well, we don't know if we can give you a nursing license because you have drug history, you know. And I'm like, okay you know, what should I do? And they're like, well, we can't tell you what to do, but we're just saying that we don't know if we can give you this license. And I'm like, well, what should I do? And they're like, well, we can't tell you what to do. So I prayed and God said, finish what you start. And so I finished school. And at the end, they're like, okay, well, we're going to give you your license, but we're going to suspend it. But we're going to put you on probation and make you take all of these urine tests to prove that what you say is true. Wow. You know, and it's funny because um, part of the 12 steps reading is that um, no matter how far down the scale you have gone, you can see how your experience can benefit others. And it's really fascinating that when they said, well, we're going to put you on probation, I'm like, I know probation. I mean, (laughs) I I know parole, you know, that's no problem. And it's like, well, you have to give us these urine tests. It's like, well, at that time I was. I was sober 11 years. It's like, give me the cup, you know? Yeah, yeah. I got nothing to hide. Yeah, yeah. And so going through that was really easy, but I didn't know that I had to go through all that stuff in my life to be prepared for that. And mm. so, you know, I I wanted what they had to offer. I was willing to go to England to get it. So I did those steps, and now I got my nursing license. Congratulations, man. And how long? So... You worked as a nurse. You worked. Was it in? Uh, it was in a psychiatric ward, or where yes. were you working? I've always okay. worked in psych. Always. Um, when I was in my disease, I was a janitor at a psychiatric facility, and um, I didn't like the way the staff was treating the clients. Mm. And somebody told me, "Well, if you don't, if you don't like it, then why don't you do better than them?" And that's what they were telling me. If you don't like what we're doing, then you get a job, and you know, you do it. I'm like, okay. Wow. <laughs> And so I I did, you know, and um, and I turn out I understand why some people use certain methods. I understand what's legal, what's not legal. Um, But still, because of what I've been through, I have uh, I have compassion for our brothers and sisters, you know, and I can be able to do things to help them on a whole different level. Um, 
and and I and I do everything obsessive. I during school, every time I get a break, I pick up another class. You know, um, mm. while I was going to school to be a psych tech, I went to school to become a addiction counselor. So now I'm a cool. certified addiction cool. treatment counselor, third level nurse. Um, when I was going through school, I'd get a break and I'd take a quick class. And so now I'm certified anger management facilitator, you know, domestic violence facilitator, uh, relapse prevention. <laughs> I mean, I just like nice. and, and constantly doing all of this stuff because, you know, one thing that I have that we all have is the gift of time. We have that. And what we, what we do with it is up to us. You know, and I discovered that every one of us have an expiration date. That that's inevitable. You know, so what you do between the time you're born and the time you die is solely up to you. And I choose to educate myself, find ease and comfort in this thing as I navigate life and enjoy it. And so that's my whole education thing. And um, as I grew in my education, so did my job selections, my opportunities. You know. Right. Because AA, AA is, is sneaky. Okay, the 12-step program is sneaky. Because <laughs> they tell you things like, get a commitment and show up, you know. And in the beginning, I used to wash ashtrays, you know. And I didn't understand why I have to wash ashtrays. But I did it because that's what they told me to do. And then I did ashtrays really good. And they allowed me to wash the coffee cups, you know. And by then, I was learning how to be accountable and responsible and I didn't know that and then next thing I know when I'm going to work I did what I was supposed to do every day consistently and then this thing happened like they gave me raises and promotions (laughs) I'm like oh you know and so that's why I say AA is tricky you know they tell you they train you right right they train you in a really weird way and at the time it's like what the hell i don't want to wash uh ashtrays this is terrible and it feels like a punishment and it feels terrible but then what you're actually learning there can take you so far i i feel the same way with my experience with service positions i hated business meetings i hated those service positions but it it taught me how to show up for something that i didn't want to do myself and just be part of something that was bigger than me and that is such a valuable way to go about work and about life. Yes. And another thing I've learned is if you can deal with the multiple personalities in a 12-step program, exactly. you could <laughs> kick butt in the world. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. There's more psychos in the 12-step world. <laughs> there's, more, there's more crazies there. So if you can handle a business meeting, you can handle actual business right right you know it's like okay let's just find a common ground you know take a deep breath your opinion is valid you know and here's why i think it might not work and mm. you know let's just go have some fun and smile it's like oh okay how did you diffuse that situation you know it's like, cause i admit i'm powerless over you you know you're not gonna make my life unmanageable i'm not gonna give you free rent in my head you know and yeah. I, I discovered the beauty of a problem is there's always a solution. Mm. Always, you know, and so there is no problem. They come in packages. And so mm. it's really cool to sort that out. So when you feel flustered or frustrated, it's like there's a solution. You just got to, you know, put the work in and get to it. The beauty of a problem is that there is a solution. Wow. I like that. Well, 
Anthony, this has been amazing. I'm so excited to see Brown Manor come to reality and see that project completed. I really hope that people who hear your story buy the book and get on board and and help support this as much as they can. Because I think the fact that you're able to make this amends, the fact that you've been granted this um this shot at life and these opportunities and then you're choosing to to use that opportunity for good in this way i think that's just an incredible story and i i want to see you succeed well thank you you know they always say um you have to give it away to keep it and i've learned that nothing's really permanent so why try to hang on to it you know Mm. um i've never seen a i've never seen a hertz or the u-haul connected to it ever you know <laughs> so this is just stuff we need to play yeah. with yeah that is so true you don't get to take anything i mean the egyptians tried they put all of the possessions in the in the in the tombs but now you take nothing with you yeah yeah and and that's the reality and why would you want to carry all this excessive baggage onto the next plane of existence you know let's just be happy joyous and free you mm. know and that's that's the beauty of this this thing called life. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm uh, I'm really happy to have met you to hear your story. And um, where can people find you? Um, I have a website. It's um, www.anthonyhowardbrown.com. Um, you can get me there. I'm all over all the other social medias. Whether it's um, Mostly, it's, I'm under Brown Manor, um, so just type that in, and um, you'll find me. But my webpage is probably the easiest, and that's um, www.anthonyhowardbrown.com. And, you know, the book is out there everywhere, from Park Bench to Park Avenue. Um, you can get that on Amazon, and, you know, somewhere in life, if you close your eyes really hard... And maybe you'd wake up and up, you'll see me. <laughs> I'm like, hey, man, what's up? <laughs> Who knows where God puts us, you know? Who knows? Well, I'm glad God put us in this uh, in this Zoom call, man. I'm really grateful to meet you, and I just I hope you have a great rest of the day. All right, thank you. I, I enjoy your company. Thank you, everyone, so much for giving your time and listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed hearing Anthony's story as much as I did. His website is anthonyhowardbrown.com. Go there, check out his project, take a look, and please consider donating to this um, to this venture. I just think that there aren't many charities that really deliver and really um, provide support for people who are suffering. And I'm confident that Anthony is one of those charities and is one of those projects that will create a difference in people's lives and really help people to recover. The mental health crisis is endemic, especially in the States. And my Instagram is at Addictive Podcast. You can keep up to date with the show there and please send me a message on any feedback about any episode or if you want to be a guest or if you have a suggestion for a guest, hit me up on Instagram. The announcement that I wanted to make, it's kind of bittersweet. I was accepted to a master's of psychology program, so I'll be starting school in a few weeks. And this has been a long dream of mine, so I'm really excited. Um, But I'm also sad because I don't think I will have the time to keep up with the podcast. I've already been cutting back on how much time I'm spending. If you probably noticed, I haven't put out an episode in a while. So with that being said, I am putting this show on hiatus. If anyone does reach out to me to be on the podcast, I'll try and make time to put out 
um, an episode here or there. But I won't be going out there looking for guests. I won't be spending time trying to grow the audience or anything like that. So it is bittersweet. It's been an absolute pleasure having this experience with you guys. Um, this podcast has um, its just been so fulfilling to me, hearing your stories, being able to share your stories. So I want to thank every single person who's been on this show. Uh, and I want to thank you guys who are listening, who uh, makes this possible and makes it worthwhile for me to do it. Uh, so thank you. And for now... I'll just say that I hope you remember that we recover together. Oh.